0: years and what it means to be a Christian. It's the, it's the basic doctrines that we hold dear. Last week we talked about the communion of the saints and the Catholic Church. We discovered that the word Catholic means universal. It means the whole body of Christ everywhere around the world. Everybody who calls on the name of Jesus is part of the church of Jesus Christ and we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we talked about the communion of saints, that oneness that we have together, that unity that we're called to have in Jesus Christ. Now we're at the, I believe, in the Holy Spirit, the third section of the Apostles' Creed. It's broken down into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And under the Holy Spirit, he talks about the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. We're going to talk about forgiveness of sins this morning because it's so important to you and I to understand that. Then next week, we're going to wrap up the series talking about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. How many of you know that we were created to live forever? we were created to live forever with God but sin intervened and came and ruined that and so we needed a savior so we're gonna talk about forgiveness of sins today this morning we're gonna focus on that phrase the forgiveness of sins forgiveness implies that there is such a thing as sin the the word forgiveness means nothing without a sin to forgive that's the object of forgiveness is sin now the concept of sin is not very much talked about today it's kind of uh, swept under the carpet, it's treated as as something that is, uh, that is not really something awful and terrible but uh, what the Bible tells us is that uh, we, tend, we tend to look at sin as kind of a mistake we look at it as absent-mindedness by, by doing so we diminish its toxicity. Sin is a cancer sin is a, is a, is a toxic substance to our souls and to our spirits And we don't hear too much about that today. We certainly underestimate the depth of our sinfulness and our personal sin. I read a story this week about an African man who who had a dream where he saw himself walking up a hill and it turned out that it was Mount Calvary and he saw the three crosses at the top of the hill and he heard something behind him. And he turned around and he looked and it was Jesus. And he was walking, struggling greatly to carry, a, to carry a load that he was carrying up the hill. And it was, it was almost wearing him down. And the man looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, you must be carrying the sins of the whole world. And in his dream, the Savior looked at him and said, No, just yours. We don't really understand how sinful we really are, do we? We don't understand how deep our sin is in our hearts. The Bible says, David wrote, excuse me, in Psalm 51. He said, I was conceived in sin. In other words, sin was with us from the very beginning, from the moment we sprang from the womb. We are sinners. We don't like to think about that. But the recognition of sin is essential to dealing with sin. So let's go back and look at the first sin in the Bible and see what it has to say to us. Turn to Genesis chapter uh, 2, I believe it is. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it's the story of Eve and Adam and the sin, the serpent, and the sin that they committed there. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? From any of the trees in the garden. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, or you, if you do, you will die. You won't die, said the serpent to so the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate it also. It was a joint effort. Sometimes we blame Eve for taking the fruit, but Adam ate it too. And it was a joint effort at sin on their parts. It was both of them that ate that fruit. But in this, in this little story that we see, we see five things about sin and temptation that the devil uses over and over and over again to get us to become sinners, to be sinners, to trap us in our sin. And the first thing is, is he questions God's Word. He questions the Word of God. Did God really say? He wants you to question God's Word. He wants you to, to think about what, what God really said. When I was a boy... <clears throat> I hated to get up for school in the morning. That may come as a shock to you, but I really didn't like getting up early in the morning to go to school. And I remember one specific instance when my mom called down the stairs and she said, Joe, are you up? Well, being a teenager and having an intellect that is just, you know, so great, I thought to myself, now what does she mean by up? Does she mean I'm awake? because I am awake, am I up out of bed? I'm not really up out of bed. So I asked her the question, what do you mean by up? My mother replied, I mean up. And I said, yes, but what do you mean by up? Suddenly the door flew open, a glass of water was tossed accurately right at my face, it splashed me, I hopped out of bed, and I said, what are you doing? She said, Now that's up. (laughs) Sometimes we do that with God too, don't we? We kind of play word games with Him. What do you really mean by that, God? What does God mean when He says, Thou shalt not? When He says, Thou shalt not, He means, Thou shalt not. So, number one, it questions the Word of God. Did God really say? Number two, it calls God a liar. It calls God a liar. She said God said in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And the devil said you won't die. This is outright rebellion against God. That's what sin is at its very core, it's rebellion against God. It is literally saying God, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to do it no matter what. <clears throat> and the, the the devil wants us to call God a liar and say it won't happen the way that you, It won't happen the way God said it will. So number two, it calls God a liar. Number three, it worries that you are missing something good. Sin makes you worried that you're going to miss something that is, that is wonderful, that is pleasurable, that is joyful, that you're missing out on something. It, it, she said it. She looked at the fruit and she saw that it was beautiful and it was wonderful and that it would make her wise and make her knowledgeable like God. And so she took the fruit and she ate it. Number four, it says it appears attractive and sweet. She saw that the fruit was delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. You know, sin isn't always a box of poison marked with a skull and crossbones on it saying, stay away, don't touch. That's not how sin works. Sin comes as something beautiful. As a matter of fact, the devil himself was called the son of the morning. The beautiful sunrise, the glory of God reflected through him. And he became as something wonderful and beautiful, something attractive. And that's how sin presents itself too. If sin came as a skull and crossbones, we wouldn't touch it. Sin would be cut down greatly. But it doesn't come as that. It comes as something beautiful and and wonderful and desirable. And then fifthly, It leads to outward disobedience. She took some of the fruit and she ate it. This is the goal of sin, to get us to act out in rebellion against God. God said you can eat any fruit of the trees in the garden. You can have anything you want except for this tree here. Don't touch this tree here. Don't touch the fruit. Do you got it, Adam? Do you got it, Eve? Don't touch the fruit. Say it after me. I will not touch the fruit. And they touched the fruit. And that was the enemy's goal through the whole thing, was to get them to take that final step and to act out in rebellion against God. <coughs> that's, what, that's the process of sin in our lives. And it happens over and over and over again. And the devil knows our weaknesses. He knows exactly where we're weakest. He knows which one works best on it. And he kind of hits us in that area over and over again. And he, and he gets what he wants when we obey him instead of God. Now, we're going to ask a few questions here to kind of get to the idea of sin, okay? We're going to talk about sin, and then we're going to talk about its solution in our lives. But first of all, who is a sinner? Who is a sinner? All of us. In Romans 3.23, "...for everyone has sinned and will f- and all fall short of God's glorious standard." Everybody's a sinner, the Bible says. We all fall short of God's glorious standard." Psalm 51, five: For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. From the moment my mother conceived me, I was born in sin. What does that mean? It means that we were always sinners. We always have been sinners. It's passed down from generation to generation. And there's no hope without Jesus Christ of not being a sinner. In John, 1 John 1, eight, it says, If we claim we have no sin... We are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. You see, one of the problems that we have is we don't judge our sin by God's objective standard. We judge our sins by the standard of those around us. And we say silly things like, well, I'm not as bad as that guy is. If you want to see a real sinner, look at that guy that lives across the street from me. I mean, he gets drunk every weekend. He abuses his wife. He he cheats on his taxes. He does all of these terrible things. Why, I'm practically an angel compared to that guy. And God says, no, you're not. You're a sinner. One sin stains you forever. and And Paul puts it in... Real unambiguous terms in Romans 3, 9 through 19. Ten verses, but they're they're so poignant. Listen to the detail that Paul goes into. He says, As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one, no one is truly wise, no one is seeking God. All have turned away and have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul. Their like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. How do you think Paul really feels about the state of mankind? He's telling us. No one is without sin. No one is without sin. And what's, what's worse, it's bad sin. Jesus brought this home when he said, if you look after a woman to lust after her in her heart, you've already committed adultery with her in her heart. You can't even say, well, I didn't actually do the deed. God said, but you wanted to. You desired it. You wanted to do it. And then he says in verse 19, obviously the law applies to those to whom it is given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses the purpose of the law is to keep us from having an excuse and to show that the entire world is guilty before God the entire world is guilty of sin before God what does sin do to us We now know that we're all sinners. Good news. You came to church to hear that you're a rotten, dirty sinner. Aren't you glad you came today? But, it, but, but the truth of the matter is, you've got to know it before you can deal with it. You know, there are tribes in South America that they're discovering today that have never been touched by other humans, that have lived in total isolation for generations and generations. A few years ago, they came across one of these tribes. And they were living in absolute poverty and filth and degradation. Everybody was sick. Everybody had disease and worms and that kind of thing. They lived in garbage. They lived in a hole in the ground. They called it their home. And, the, and they, they, they counted garbage as a prize but they didn't know there was a better way to live. They didn't know because everyone had lived like that before, everyone lived like that now, and everyone was destined to live like that for the rest of their lives. You see, the truth of the matter is, when we are surrounded by sin, sin looks normal. When we're surrounded by sin, sin appears to be normal. And folks... We are surrounded by sin. We are surrounded by sinful attitudes. We are surrounded by rebellion against God. And by the way, I think it's only going to get worse. I think it's only going to get worse. And the church had better have its hiking shoes on. It had better be ready for persecution. It had better be ready for, for uh, trouble and, and tribulation. Because it's coming, it's, it, you can see it on the, in the news today. But when, it, when, it, when you're surrounded by sin, sin looks normal. So what does sin do to us? What is the effect of sin? Well, its ultimate effect on us is to separate us from God. It says in Isaiah 59 too, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, He has turned away and will not listen anymore. Sin builds distance between you and God, between me and God. Sin makes God a foreigner to us. Sin makes God farther away. It makes Him seem as though He's not listening To our prayers. Sin is what what separates us from God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now if you're working for something, you want your wages to be good, don't you? You want your wages to be something profitable. You want to make more than you were making before. But the wages of sin is death. That shows the foolishness of sin. It says, I'm going to pay off in the end. And it does. It pays off in death. Both physical death, the Bible makes it very clear. We're all going to die someday and we're going to die because of sin. Eve's Eve's sentence is carried out in each one of us that we're going to die in our sins. Uh, and and, and that's, that's just the truth. Everybody here today is going to die someday. More good news. Aren't you glad you came to church? We're all going to die someday, but even worse than that is spiritual death. The Bible talks about a second death, and that is separation from God for all eternity. Now, hell will be hot. I believe that hell is going to be a place of flames, like the Bible says. But I do not believe that that is the ultimate suffering that we're going to have in hell. You know what the ultimate suffering of hell is going to be? It's going to be knowing that you are separated from God and there is absolutely no hope of ever being reconciled again. That's what makes hell, hell. Being separated from God and knowing that you will always be separated from God. The hope of eternity without God, the, the hope of eternity with God is stricken from the memory. It's not there anymore and that's what makes hell, hell. So sin does terrible things to us. But what has God done about our sin? Well, God has done something so great, so massive, so wonderful, that we can't even explain it. It says, for this is how God loved the world, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. He gave His Son for us. He gave Jesus Christ to die for our sins. He paid that death penalty for us. That eternal death penalty is paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. God demanded a blood sacrifice in the Old Testament for the sins of the nation of Israel. But it only only took care of it for that year. They had to do it again the next year. They had to do it again the next year. They had to do it again the next year. Because the blood of goats and lambs pointed to the perfect sacrifice that was coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus' blood was so pure, so untainted by sin that only His blood could be the payment for our sins. And He went to the cross and He gave His life willfully so that we could have eternal life with Him. Verse John 4, 9 God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. In Romans 8.3 it says the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. The weakness of the law is that we could never keep it in perfection. We could never keep all of the law. The Ten Commandments, we break them every day. We break them all the time. And that dooms us to hell. But God sent His Son to take care of what the law could not do for us, could not make us right in God's sight. And He gave His Son as a sacrifice for you and I. That leads to the final question. What do I need to do about it? What do I need to do about my sin now? Well, the Bible gives us an answer for that. In Romans 10, 8 through 10, it says this. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. Listen to this. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in your heart confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead that he is God come in the flesh that he is the one that lives eternally that he gave himself completely and totally for us you will be saved there's a surety to that there's a confidence in that that if you do those things God will see that you're saved for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved In Acts chapter 16, it's the story of Paul and Silas are in jail for preaching the gospel and they're in stocks and chains. They're bound down in the jail and there's a great earthquake that happens and it frees all the prisoners, pops the prison doors open, makes the chains come off them. And the jailer runs down there and sees that they're all ready to escape and he's going to kill himself. And he says to them, he said, Uh, The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's a guy in real time, in real life, wondering, What do I got to do to have what you have? What do I have to do to be saved, to be made right with God? What does it take for my sins to be forgiven? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And then they shared the word of the Lord with Him and with all who lived in the household. They got baptized. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. They got saved. They got on their way to heaven. Their lives were changed and they were made. The sin was washed away in their life. And that's what we're talking about this morning. The ability for God to wash away the sins, to forgive the sins that we have committed that is our hope today you see I can tell you all day long that you're all dirty rotten scoundrel sinners and it doesn't change a thing unless you have those sins wiped away unless you have them taken away by the power of the Holy Spirit God wants to cleanse you he wants to make you whole he wants to make you clean God does not take delight in sending anyone to hell as a matter of fact we send ourselves to hell when we refuse God's gracious gift of salvation And God does not delight in that. He doesn't like that at all. There's a story that I want to close with in the New Testament. Jesus told it. It's called the story of the prodigal son. And it sums up greatly what we've been talking about here this morning. It's found in the book of of Matthew. It says, to illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told the father... I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now this is a gracious father. I'm afraid if this were me, I'd say, wait your turn. I'm not gone yet. I'm not planning on going anywhere yet. But he divided his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about this time, the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses (laughs) when he finally came to his senses he said to himself at home even the hired servants had enough food to spare and here I am dying of hunger I will go home to my father and say father I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was yet a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father